0: Hi everyone and welcome to the new season and new episode of the Undesign podcast. I'm your host Justina Green. I've missed you all so much and I'm super happy to be back with 15 amazing episodes that will take us all the way to the end of this year without mentioning the C word or the CH word I should say. Anyhow, we'll be inspired, entertained and we'll learn lots of new things. And I'm super curious, actually, about how you have been, what you've been working on and how this year has been going for you. So make sure to get in touch and email me at hello at justinagreen.com or message me on Instagram at justinagreen and I'll make sure to share here things you've been working on. And I guess what I've been up to. So I think the biggest change is that I have left London after 15 years and I've moved to the seaside. So I do feel slightly (laughs) middle-aged. I've been wanting to move for a few years now and before COVID and when I had more consulting work on, I would still have client meetings in London. And when I was freelancing for Dizine, I would be there one day a week as well. So I kind of had to still be in London. But in the past two years, as my work has been shifting to more illustration and this podcast and my consulting clients are not actually based in London anymore, it was kind of perfect time to move. So anyhow, yes, I've moved to Dorset. I can cycle to the beach in 12 minutes, which is amazing. Um, and you wouldn't believe it, but I can't swim just yet. So I have, a, I'm having swimming lessons too. Um, so that's the personal side. And I guess on the work side, I think I'm getting close to defining my niche with illustration, which I think will help uh, getting new commissions. And I'll tell you more about that in the next episodes. Um, cause I'm really keen to kind of share with you what I'm learning on my journey in case it helps you. Um, but yes, that's me. We are opening this season with a very special guest. But before we move to today's episode and our guest, I have some amazing news for you. And I hope now there are some sound effects behind me. Because this podcast now has a sponsor and I'm really, really happy because the sponsor is the Conran Shop. If you've been following the podcast for a while... You might know that in the last season I interviewed the creative director of the Conrad Shop, Stephen Bryas, and we've just really got on (laughs) and we got on with Steven and with Gabby from the team really kind of from that more conversations followed and we created this amazing partnership. So the Conran shop will support the podcast financially, which means I actually have a job Um, jerking. I have other things going on as you know, but also they will be sharing the podcast on their homepage and kind of on their social media and their newsletters. So we'll be growing our community um, far and white, which is super exciting. Um, if you haven't heard about the Conran shop, A, how is it possible? B, let me tell you a bit more about them. So the Conran shop is one of the world's leading design retailers with stores in London, Paris, Japan, and South Korea. It was founded by Sir Terence Conran in 1973, and the brand offers an eclectic hand-selected edit of furniture, lighting, and home accessories at all price points. And they champion Sir Terence's philosophy of plain, simple, useful objects for everyday living. From Eames Icon by Vitra to future classics by up-and-coming talents, the Conran Shop hosts some of the biggest names in the industry and consistently champions new makers too. So visit conranshop.com today and follow at the Conran Shop official on Instagram to immerse yourself in the world of design. And now on to today's guest. We're opening this season with a conversation with designer Stefan Sagmeister, whose work over the years delighted and surprised people across the world. He started his studio in 1993 and worked predominantly in the music industry, creating album covers for the likes of The Rolling Stones, David Byrne and Brian Eno. And for his work with the latter two, he received actually two Grammys. He's worked across commercial and cultural projects with partner Jessica Walsh and only in the past few years he's withdrawn himself from the agency to focus on non-commercial projects and to explore his interests in long-term thinking, beauty and happiness. And these are actually some of the key topics uh, of our conversation. But Stefan also offers insight as varied as believing that a team of three creatives would be enough to rebrand a whole country and that Twitter's lack of beauty in its design affects the nature of the conversations people are having on the platform. Right, without further ado, let's dive into this chat. So let's start with the Quick fire five, and see 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 what we what we do what we get from it. So first question: um, If you weren't in your current role, I guess if you weren't the you know doing yeah. what you're doing, what would you be doing?
1: Hmm, I probably would be a terrible musician.
0: <laughs> would you? Would you have a band?
1: Yeah, uh, uh, an extremely awful band. I actually used to be in terrible bands when I was very young, and. Uh, I mean, there was always a special attraction uh, in music for me. But, uh, no, I'm so glad I didn't go down that route.
0: (laughs) Second question. What would your dream project be? It's
1: going to sound very self-satisfied, but I think I'm working on the projects that I am dreaming of. Meaning, like, it's like I now, after many, many years, am in a part of my life where I can completely choose and determine what I'm working on. And so what I'm dreaming to work on, I'm actually working on. And that's that whole, you know, now is better, beautiful number series that I'm sure we're going to get into at one time.
0: Yeah, yeah, perfect. That's that's a good place to be in. Um, question number three, a creative you admire?
1: Well, uh, I think that... The, the person that played probably the biggest role in my life creatively would have been Tibor Kalman, a former boss of mine, a Hungarian designer who uh, worked out of New York City in a company called Emond Company, where I also worked for a short while. And as he he, I definitely very much admire him still. Meaning he died a long time ago, 15 years at least ago. But uh, uh he would definitely be the person who had the biggest influence on myself.
0: Number four, one thing you can't stand in design.
1: I find specifically now, faster and cheaper, just a terrible strategy. And, you know, slower and better is so much more effective. And ultimately, I think everybody, the audience, the designer, the client is better off by slower and better.
0: And the final of the first five questions was the best piece of advice you were ever given.
1: That's an easy one because um, Tibor Kalman gave me a whole bunch of great advice. Uh, One that I remember when I opened up the studio was the most difficult thing in running a design studio is to figure out how not to grow. Everything else is super easy.
0: Right. So that's our quick fire questions done. Let's dive into the interview. So I wanted to check in. How are you doing? Like, what are you up to now? Are you don't do commercial work and how has it felt to just get rid of all clients? Well, not get rid of because Jessica, took, you know, continued, but to just have them off your own shoulders.
1: But well, it's uh, I'm not doing any more commercial work, but I'm still I'm still dealing with clients so i still have on a good number of projects clients but these tend to be projects that are have a very open brief so right now we're doing a mural we did a bike pass we designed some tunnels for a hospital system in canada uh, these 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 uh pieces of work come with clients and their presentations and all of that but the briefs tend to be far more open I mean there is nothing let's say to sell and if you ask how has it been feeling it's been feeling great I mean unsurprisingly uh, this is wonderful uh, I've never really had a big problem with coming up with ideas for projects or with starting things so uh that has not been, you know, a bane in my life. So I, yeah, I find that pretty easy. And while I should say that I haven't suddenly changed and now think that client work is silly or anything like that, I don't actually at all. Like I have a a big admiration for people who work in commercial design and can do good work in there. And I think it's fantastic that good people work in that realm because Mm -hmm. sometimes I feel it has more of an influence on how the world looks like or what kids see around the world than many of the pieces that might only be, you know, hanging in a museum. So I think that that's uh, super important. I just feel I've done enough of it, you know, in the similar way that, I don't know, after a decade of being involved, or almost a decade of being involved, in album cover design. uh, There was a point when I felt, okay, I think I've, you know, explored that area, and now I want to do something different, simply for, I don't know, uh, uh, a different kind of scenery, of a new challenge, of, of, uh, yeah, Getting a different input into my life,
0: and because I think that as we chat, I can see a Grammy behind you, if if I'm correct.
1: Yeah, oh yeah, 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 there are some Yeah, two, yeah, sorry, two
0: Grammys in there. And wow. yes. can we talk about it a little about you know how maybe there's a dream to do a certain type of work, and you know I understand for you that was to work with musicians and and you know deliver incredible work, then you win awards. Then you do the twenty eighth cover or so, and then you think you just can't be bothered doing more covers. And how does one go through that process of kind of reaching a dream and then realizing that what you thought will be the kind of the end goal moves on, and you start to search for something new?
1: Well, in my case, I basically went through all that uh, through the medicals, really. Uh, You know, early on or definitely after seven years of running the studio, I decided to implement this uh, strategy that every seven years I would close the studio for a year or uh, in later years, specifically when Jessica was a, a, a partner, I would just basically take myself out of the studio and go for a year somewhere else to explore stuff. The rule was basically just no client work. And uh, when you're exploring things, you, of course, also have a possibility to rethink what you've done in the previous seven years and sort of like make some plans of where this could be, what is juicy, what is on the horizon, all of these things. So I think that the the sabbaticals were perfect for that. uh, Because when you're right in the center of it, in the middle of it, and you're like, you know, delivering things for deadlines, I find it sometimes difficult to change direction or to really step back and think, is this really what I'm doing? And there is a possibility, I'm not quite sure, but there's a possibility that without the without the sabbaticals, I would still be designing <laughs> CD covers and would be, you know, wondering why business is so bad. <laughs> and... Uh,
0: and how did it feel, just as you you know, how did it feel when you were taking were about to take your first sabbatical? Because it's quite a big thing, right?
1: Oh, uh, like for sure, because I didn't know any well, I had that's not quite true. I had a brother-in-law who had taken a sabbatical as a faculty member. A more for that time in Austria also quite unusual, but in academia, it's a bit more accepted. In design, I didn't know anybody who had done it and so there were all sorts of fear, of course, that I had. You know, specifically the one of being forgotten, the one of uh, appearing non-professional also to my family or to my parents that, you know, having built a design studio in New York for seven years now, closing it. They were like all, all the fears that you would think you would have. And It turned out that these fears were true assumptions of mine happening mostly in my head because, uh, that fear did not manifest itself or none of those fears manifested themselves in reality as meaning we were not forgotten. Our clients did not think this was unprofessional, the more usual, response that I got was that, oh, I would love to do that too. And, uh, uh, and the, I would say probably most importantly, the thinking done in the sabbatical always led to new directions and to new projects. And if I look back at the almost four times of seven years that I've done, by now I've done three sabbaticals, so like, and I see it like as four sections. If I look back at those four sections, I would say most of the work that I now really think was worthwhile to do, work that has meaning for me, is connected to the sabbatical. Not necessarily made in the sabbaticals, but definitely likely would not have been done if it wouldn't have been for the sabbaticals. And I think on top of it, that experience of the sabbaticals made it possible that I still to this day, maybe not every second, but quite quite often see my work as a calling rather than just as a job or just as work. And I feel and I see this with my students This is something that's quite easy to deteriorate into a job. Like, you know, many of my students, when they come on the first day and I see them at the School of Visual Arts, I think see design as a calling. But when I talk to them four years into the job afterwards, many of them just see it as a job. You know, that they do 9 to 5, and by Wednesday, they kind of hope that it's the weekend very quickly. And I think that the possibility... Or i give you another example. Uh, I here and there was lucky enough to be able to talk Milton Glaser into having lunch with me. And... Uh, At one time, we talked about our favorite achievements and Milton's favorite achievement in his life was that he was able to design a life where he was still completely interested in design at the very end of it. And he mentioned that most of his colleagues and he was in his eighties then, Somehow didn't weren't able to do that
0: because it must be so hard to do it right over the over the years with constant work. There must be something because, yeah. um, like you say, like if you just continue, where how do you recharge? Where do you get new ideas? Where do you get rest and kind of just, I guess, cleanse your palette as well, kind of creatively. Yeah.
1: In my case, it's definitely the sabbaticals. Mm. And I wouldn't say that the Sabbaticals necessarily are a rest in the in the way that I would sit on the beach and read a book or make notes. It's actually they tend to be quite work filled because that's what I like to do. But even that was a discovery for me because I thought, like, there were many things during the first seven years of the studio that where I thought. Oh, if I would only have the time, I would love to do that. And with some of those things, this was definitely true. And with many others, that turned out to be not true at all. For example, I always thought I would love to read more. Like, you know, at the time, I probably read, I don't know, one to two books a month, maybe. And I thought I would love to read much more. turned out not true during the sabbaticals. <laughs> I read just about as much as I read uh, during the regular work hours. And I didn't read more at all. And there were a number of these things, a number of insights that were delusional.
0: So you got to know yourself more.
1: I would say that's a nice side effect from the sabbaticals that you actually get to know yourself a little bit more.
0: And so do you have another sabbatical, sabbatical coming up?
1: I have a sabbatical coming up in two years. Yes, absolutely. years, yeah. and
0: like, do you make plans, plans for them, like ahead of time, like where you go?
1: It's different. It's uh, I tend like in the in the first sabbatical, I had the ill-begotten idea to specifically make no plan because I'm a big plan maker. And I thought I'll do the opposite. I'll make absolutely no plan. That did not work for me. It really did not. Like it basically, I I occupied myself with busy work, but didn't really get anything done. So I absolutely needed a plan. And sort of two or three weeks, when the first two or three weeks were incredibly frustrating, I made a big, very tight plan and then it worked. In my case, I definitely have to make a plan. Uh, They are sometimes quite tight plans, so I just basically look at all of the things that might be of interest and then divvy them up into weekly, into hourly uh, uh, segments per week. If something is important, I do five or six hours a week. If something is less important, it might be half an hour a week. And I would say this changed in the last sabbatical where I almost, I worked on some other stuff, but... The, the vast thing that I was working on was beauty. So that really was something that I knew going in, that it was just a subject that I didn't really have time to completely explore in the regular work hours. And originally, the plan actually was to go on sabbatical with the entire studio And we already looked at, you know, like around the world tickets for everybody and all of that stuff. And then Jessica thought, who was my partner at the time, that she she actually doesn't really feel like going. And that meant, of course, that everybody else had to stay home too. And because it would not make sense for me to go on the medical and let Jessica uh, be there. Uh, And that actually had its own interesting flair because... We could discuss like uh, Jessica at one time came down to Mexico. We could discuss the first ideas or the stuff that came out, and then while I was on sabbatical, the studio in New York would already develop, you know, the visuals for some of these ideas. So we that then allowed us to contact the museums actually much earlier, really during the sabbatical, uh, which. was then also done. So it, it was a, I think that ultimately the only thing I try to do in every sabbatical is to make it quite different than the previous ones. So the first one, I stayed in New York. The second one, I thought something different. Then I was in Bali, in Indonesia for the whole year. The third one, I went into three different locations. That was Mexico City, Tokyo, and a tiny village in the Austrian Alps, four months each. And for the fourth, I don't know yet. We'll see. You don't know yet. I don't know yet. No. Be, uh, I had one time thought it might be interesting to drive. It was sort of like an old dream to drive a truck through Siberia when it's very cold and do a sabbatical there. And we kind of did a little, uh, a little, I don't know, like a, uh, a rehearsal of this by renting a car and going through Alaska for like a, uh, for a little road trip. And I have to say that road trip was quite a lot of fun. But I'm not sure if I would want to do that for a year. Or actually, it looked like that this is not quite something that I really would be into for the long term. So, why would but, that be?
0: Think, like, what was it missing?
1: I just think that being spending these very large amounts in a car, and then if you really would go through Siberia, you would likely have to spend a lot of time in the car, like sleeping in the car or so, because I don't think that there is, you know, uh, just, you know, appropriate hotels and motels uh, that dotting all around the way. And I think ultimately I might not be enough of the camping type to truly enjoy that.
0: Yeah, and I guess also if because it sounds to me that every sabbatical you actually do a lot of work but it's work that you don't see as work um so you also need space i guess and to to be able to do that right to be able to express yourself yeah yeah Visit the Conran shop today to discover the design destination's newest additions. Some of my favorites are Pierre 70s-inspired groovy chair in four exclusive finishes, Patricia Urquiola's retro futuristic series, and the Mexican-made textiles by Res. Head to conranshop.com to find your favorite. So shall we talk about beauty and happiness? Sure. And your, I guess, fascination with both of the topics... We can start with beauty and move to happiness, especially kind of with, you know, beautiful numbers and, and the unprecedented times we live in. <laughs> and kind of your thoughts on that as well.
1: Sure. Uh, the, well, meaning mean, just uh, basically to follow up on the argument just before, I think another thing that I saw in Alaska was that there is an incredible amount of natural gorgeousness and unbelievably, in contrast, the, the crazy ugliness that humans have put into this gorgeousness. And my feeling is that this would be even more radically so in Siberia, from what I've seen. You know, meaning the, the, the towns and settlements I've seen in Siberia are marked by incredible ugliness. Uh, and meaning, strangely, This also was true in in Alaska. So that also was something that I didn't really look forward to. But going back to beauty itself, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it was a subject that uh, has been quite close to my heart, sort of starting maybe in middle age, because before that, as a designer, I didn't really think much about form or shape, or color, or materiality. It was I was one of those designers that was extremely concept-driven and where concept sort of ruled and everything else had to kind of you know be underneath the concept. So cut all of those things, those aesthetic attributes would have been chosen to make sort of like underneath the concept. And it basically, I think through experience dawned on me that whenever we took the form very seriously, the results seemed to work much better. And then when I looked into it, other smart people, specifically the ones who also went into this conceptual world had discovered the same thing. Like I remember reading a transcript of a talk that Max Bill had given in the 1950s to his Swiss colleagues where he said that beauty is uh, is a function all by itself and that we won't be able to do good work unless we take beauty as seriously as we take functionality. That they are basically, that they have to be taken on the, with the same level of intensity while designing. And that just seemed interesting to me. And specifically because I live in a world where I go to, you know, conferences where so many designers still sort of reject any kind of aesthetics and see themselves as pure problem solvers. And thinking about it, it became very clear to me that so many of the problems that we solve are so easy to solve that that the work is really trivial. So that uh, it's just so much more difficult to solve them in a beautiful or joyful way. You know, like, uh, I think my standard example would be, I don't know, if I look at this, the, the chair that I'm sitting on, if I would have to design 50 new chairs that all just need to be reasonably comfortable to sit on, that's a job I can do in hours. You know, if that's all, it, if it just if, if it just needs the functionality, it's so easy to do. But if that chair has to be reasonably comfortable to sit on and at the same time be beautiful and at the same time be relevant to the time that we are living in, that becomes an incredibly difficult job because then suddenly I'm competing against 5,000 years of chair culture. And I would have to have a reason why I have an influence from the Egypt or the Renaissance or, I don't know, 1960s pop culture onto that chair. And how to, if I do have these influences, how to mix them to make it relevant, but ultimately achieve a form and shape and materiality that is of our times and, and makes... Adds something to the life of the user that goes beyond comfort.
0: And that's completely different process you described as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's it's extremely difficult. So it's just so interesting that so many designers still feel that aesthetics or beauty is kind of below them and they see it as something surface related or something that only a superficial person would pursue, When we found that just not to be the case at all, that it actually adds an incredible amount of difficulty to the process and needs the highest sophistication of the person who designs it, but also really touches something in all of us as users, that is at the core deeply human. And I see it everywhere. That in all the spaces, be that be they physical spaces be they large spaces or be they small spaces. That beauty or their lack thereof has an incredible influence of how we feel and how we behave. It's just the other day I watched this new Netflix series called Trainwreck uh, Woodstock 99 and it's about this revival of Woodstock that was a total disaster where the the audience, you know, ripped down the the sound system and set it on fire. I mean, it was the worst behaving audience you could imagine. And this was so very clearly and so very tightly connected to the fact that because the organizers were afraid that everybody is going to get in for free, as they did in the original Woodstock in 69, they had the harebrained idea to call it Woodstock 99 but have it actually not take place on the rolling hills of upstate New York but in an abandoned air uh, uh, military base. So the whole thing was all tarmac and concrete with, you know, uh, pieces of like, you know, vinyl-printed posters and some hand-painted thingies sort of like placed carefully everywhere. and But this kind of lack of beauty first made people throw their garbage, influenced the behavior of the audience by first throwing the garbage everywhere and then ultimately rioting. And of course, it's never quite as simple as that. there were a number of other influences too. it was incredibly hot uh, blah 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 they were it was not just the lack of beauty, but even in the documentary they very very clearly talk about how about the influence of the concrete and the tarmac and the, the ugliness of the space, how that sort of like, skews the entire event. And that is true, you know, pretty much for any piece of design. It's not just true for music festivals. It's true for, I don't know, the High Line that's next to me here in New York where nobody throws any garbage away because it's such... It's the space in its design tells you this is not the place to throw your paper cup away. And nobody does and in the same way it's you know one of the reasons why, ev- why everybody is so aggressive and behaves so badly on twitter because it's a purely functioning space where aesthetics play a very very minor role and people be- subsequently people behave badly again it's likely not the only reason but it's one of them and it's ultimately and there we can come back on Uh, Max Bill's quote, we have to lift beauty up on the same level as functionality, the designers of Twitter did not care about beauty. They didn't design it, like they didn't want a platform that was particularly ugly, but it was all about efficiency and functionality. And the result is this aggressive space where, let's say, the designers of Instagram took beauty much more seriously and Instagram has its own mistakes and its own problems, but it's clearly a less aggressive space than Twitter is and resulting from it. It's also much more successful as a platform. You know, it's much bigger than Twitter. It makes much more money than Twitter. It grows much faster. So it's, basically if the designers of twitter would have seen the Mark bill quote and took it seriously twitter would be significantly more better as in less aggressive and more successful
0: but then the question is that you know with so many examples you're citing and kind of it being like pretty obvious kind of from your perspective as well then why are designers not doing it is it because there's no scientific studies and hard data on how beauty affects behavior or profitability for example is it because it seemed as soft um and therefore in business meetings client meetings there's no data to put forward to quote studies to quote to actually prove the point
1: i think that uh there's a couple of reasons. I think one reason is laziness. I think when the possibility of pure functionality was offered to us, we very happily took it because it was so easy to achieve. And to and uh, second reason, what you are saying is that pure functionality is clearly easier to judge than aesthetics are. But I think that is going to change. I know numerous efforts now going on for definitely a decade or so where uh, proper scientific efforts are spent to be able to make beauty measurable uh, there is a, by now, a friend of mine, but a scientist I worked a lot with, uh, together with for the show and the book. Dr. Helmut Leder runs one of the very largest, uh, institutes for aesthetics and psychology anywhere in the world. And that's basically what he's trying to do to put numbers on things. And the, even the research that he has already completed and there as an interesting side effect, beauty became unfashionable in science in the same way that it became unfashionable in art and design. So let's say from until the turn of the century, like until the 2000s, there was almost no proper research done into the world of aesthetics because nobody was interested in it. Really, in a very similar way, sort of like in that space, I would say, you know, obviously beauty ruled in the 19th century. You know, where many people thought that it's the equivalent to a moral, to uh, that it has moral grounds in the same way that goodness has, sort of like on the same level as goodness. This was... Basically thrown out in the beginning of the 20th century, throughout this like Duchamp, who they came back from World War One and thought that you know the the uh, strategies of civilization of civilizations clearly were not working, considering how we just all killed each other in World War One in the most brutal way. So they actively tried to get aesthetics out of art and then out of design and that uh, at the same time, of course, modernism was going on in architecture and design. But the original modernists in architecture took form and beauty very seriously if you look at, you know, the, the beginnings of, I don't know, Mies or Loos or, uh, or Corbusier. Form was a very, very big part of, of their work. But that then was misunderstood in the second part of the second of the 20th century as sort of some sort of I don't know uh, economic functionalism where the faster and the cheaper came in that we've mentioned before. Uh, in any way, I do believe that we are all back towards beauty right now that the I don't believe that this idea of delivering pure functionality will survive much longer. And you see that the best architects in the world, let's say like Jacques Herzog from Herzog & Demiron, or uh, some of the Italians, they're now very openly talking about beauty again. There are avant-garde architecture symposiums, three days purely about beauty. So this, I think this functionality idea that this is what we're all about, I think is is going, yeah, I think will be part of history. And my guess is that in 10 or 20 years, we will look at that period roughly from the 1950s until the year 2000 as an exception, as sort of like a little craziness in human development where this was the only time in human history or in human civilization where we thought beauty is not important because we did it for all we did it well basically we, we thought beauty was important since a million years even before we were properly homo sapiens we created clear evidence of things that that we thought oh no we like it better that way because this is more gorgeous
0: so i wonder if it will be the kind of the 50 year um, problem that will you know that that, that we'll see or will it kind of... Will there be ebb and flow? And depends what happens with civilization, with technology. We'll have the period of beauty to then fall into period of fun- functionality.
1: Because that's yeah. possible as well. Yeah, I mean, my... I've never been fantastic in predicting the future. On this one, I'm pretty sure. Like, if we would... In 10 years down the line, enter another period of functionalities, I can see it. I really can see it. And if you look at, I don't know, if you look, let's say, if you look at the, the products that are incredibly successful, that really dominate our culture, you know, probably none as much as the iPhone, you know, coming from one of the few companies where the founder was always outspoken and incredibly interested in aesthetics. Uh, It's And these kind of products are, of course, the products that are completely copied within its own category. I mean, right now, I don't think there is a smartphone on the market that is not a direct copy from the iPhone or from that. But of course, that goes much further into other directions. And so, uh, yeah, I think that uh, I think we are we are moving into that direction.
0: Excellent. So we can leave the ugly times behind us.
1: I think yes. I mean, it's going to take a while, but yes, uh, I very much believe so. Yeah.
0: And moving on from beauty, because we don't have, I think, that much time left, to happiness. Another such, you know, such big and important topic that links to beautiful numbers as well, and kind of the projects that yeah. currently make you happy and that are your dream projects. Um, and I think you know, I started to think about happiness for a chat as well where, of course, after watching the the film, but now, as we were talking about how beauty is not quite, can't quite be measured, and how with happiness, not only, well, we can try to measure it, but we don't quite know what will make us happy, or what we seek as happiness might not be the thing. So tell me about your thoughts on happiness, because you've done a lot of work on the topic.
1: I mean, I think that in general... Uh, You're correct. We are quite bad at figuring out what will make us happy in the future, because all the planning is in our prefrontal cortex, and that's the newest part of the brain, probably the least, the the one that has the least uh, evolutionary experience. And uh, we are, yeah, uh, many of us have big difficulties in figuring out what actually would satisfy us in in the future. I would say that, you know, the project that I'm really working on now and the, the uh, I think that the, the shirts that I'm wearing is part of that, but many, many other things is a project that looks quite far into the past, you know, long-term thinking. I look at data that, vary depending on where it's available, sometimes as far back as 500 years, sometimes... Uh, 200 years, sometimes there's only data for 50 years, but ultimately long-term data. And I look at all sorts of different developments. And surprisingly, the main human developments have developed very positively. And that's, I think for many people, that's that's a surprise considering how terrible the news are every day. And he is completely a dismissed yes.
0: on day to day.
1: Yeah. So basically, if I look at any daily news, be it in the New York Times or on Twitter or on uh, cable TV, because of that medium that is of the moment and because of the moment, we as an audience much prefer negative news and neg- and also every negative, every negative event happens very suddenly, so it lends itself to the daily news, while many positive news go ve- develop very, very slowly, so they don't really lend themselves for the mediums that we consume every day. And that, that uh, quote by Marshall McLuhan that I never really quite got, the medium is the message is part of that. It's basically the medium of TV news. And there, it doesn't even matter if you listen to Fox or to CNN, it's the medium of, of TV news has a certain kind of look and a certain kind of feel and a certain kind of tone. And that tone is negative because in that time frame it works. It has, that's what works, but if you look at human development from a two hundred year point of view, you get a completely different trajectory. I Meaning, there is a famous or a beautiful quote by Max Roser, a scientist uh, at Oxford in in, in in the UK, who says that if uh, basically the headline that two hundred thousand People escaped extreme poverty today would have been true every day for the past 20 years. You could have run that headline every single day for the past 20 years and it would have been true. But I don't think it ran once. <laughs> it, because it's such, such a very... Uh, uh, it's just uh, something positive that grows very slowly. And the things, of course, now many people will say, well, what do you think is positive and negative? That's up for debate. Uh, Yes, but most of us are rather alive than dead. That's just the case because we are alive, most of us, and very few of us actually kill themselves. So the most of us that are rather alive than dead are likely happy about that we live longer than we used to. And it's significantly in the 200 year uh, perspective, we live two and a half times as long as we used to. Most of us are rather fat than being hungry. Most of us rather live in peace than in war, in a democracy than a dictatorship. We rather are healthy than sick. And all of these things have been measured with very, very good data. There is data over the last 200 years for all of these. And all of them have improved significantly. Now, uh, and basically being a communication designer, I'm trying to create designs that visualize that. Designs so how that, do you do that? So some of them, you ha- these are designs that you hang on the wall. So they are long-term. So basically, I buy at auction 200-year-old paintings, and then I put new inserts in that kind of look like minimal art within a 18th or 19th century genre painting, but are ultimately really data visualizations that somebody hopefully buys from me, they did in the past, and hang on the wall as a reminder that what they just read in the New York Times isn't quite as... doesn't quite mean that it's all doom and gloom. And I do the same on things that's closer to your skin on fashion, like the shirt that I'm wearing or do the same on glasses. This is one of them. Uh, uh, These are hand painted for a small company in uh, also a very long term company, a company that has been around for hundreds of years in Vienna in Austria and various things like we designed the watch, we designed coffee cups, uh, all sorts of things, pieces of design that drive this idea home that ultimately, even though the daily news looked terrible, it is now better than it used to be in the past. And now that brings us back into some sort of happiness theme because If I look at the past, let's say, 20 centuries, and uh, one thing that I really looked at the numbers would be violence. Violence has been going down every single century for the past 20 centuries. So every century has been least violent than the one before. If you have numbers like this, it is very logical to assume that the next twenty, the next century again, this will again be uh, uh, be the case. Now, of course, this is never completely even, and you know what we now see, what's happening, you know, in in the Ukraine. Of course, goes against what I just say, and I probably wouldn't. You know point this out to somebody who is in the middle of that war because i'm sure they couldn't hear that but and the also right now the numbers are very difficult to get out of the ukraine but it's always like it's always been like two step forwards one step back two steps forwards one step back but ultimately in all of these directions we see that there is progress not steady progress, and with every new direction it comes with side effects that then have to be taken care of, but in general, I believe there is progress, and meaning I can definitely say if I would have the option of trying out a time machine, oh, I 100% would go forward and never would go back.
0: It's very... Interesting what you say, and like you mentioned with Ukraine as well, if somebody's currently suffering, then they won't care about the long-term stats and happiness.
1: Absolutely, I completely get the view. The world is a terrible place because if you look at it from solely from today's perspective, that is very, very true. I meaning that you know uh, there are far too many kids still dying in the first six months. And we should do absolutely everything that it takes to lower the amount of kids dying within the first six months. And at the same time, if we look at that number from a 10-year or a 100-year or a 500-year perspective, we see that we've already we've already moved that number down incredibly and i believe that let's say if we assume for a second it is 50 50 if we can lower it or if we can't lower it that number of, of 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 babies dying still then it makes complete sense for me to be optimistic about it because of op- looking or trying to change this from a platform that we've already achieved all this in the past will be more successful than trying to do that from a platform of doom.
0: I think it's about choosing the attitude, essentially, isn't it? Because it's about action and then are we driven by anger and negative emotions or are we driven by positive emotions and hope.
1: But I think it's not just choosing, it's choosing that attitude or arriving at that attitude based on facts.
0: I, I see a lot of um, quite angry activism these days, and especially social yeah. media is terrible for it. Absolutely. Where it's, where it's driven, there's a news story, there's anger, yeah. And there's activism or lack of activism or, you know, maybe just looks like activism on social media, but nothing actually happens from it. And I'm thinking like how, how to get across that long-term data to, because, you know, I don't believe with an activism, I don't believe that offending another person is a solution or, yes. you know, and, and so it, it's, you know, how can we make it powerful and visible so that, and you know, and anger can be very destructive as well, so that people who want to do something can feel calm, positive, and then take action from that place.
1: Yeah. Well, it's a, uh, it's a great question. I'm definitely trying my best, but, uh, you know, I definitely uh, experienced pushback without a doubt. And, you uh, uh, pushback from corners that you just described or where I had the feeling it's activism from activists that don't really do much, but they're very angry about something. There is a certain kind of ownership in misery. Uh, it's, It's actually strange because I really do believe that I can be much more active a higher degree of activism when I know I've already achieved this and now I have to achieve that, then if I believe it is now the worst time it's ever been and somehow have to fight myself out of this hole. And it's interesting, like, you know, it's, uh, I have... Many of my friends are activists, some of them extremely successful activists. And I remember one of my very good friends, he's a very successful, very doing activist in the world of inequality. And I remember a couple of years ago when I didn't really do my own research yet of having a discussion with him of... If he thinks that inequality is now just worse than it was, say, a hundred years ago, or if he thinks that it's now the worst it's ever been. And he thought, and he this is a highly intelligent person who at one time ran a company with 15,000 or 20,000 employees, a very smart person. And he was convinced, that it is now the worst it's ever been. Now, in the meantime, I very much know that it's actually only the worst it's been in the past 40 years, that in the United States, that in wealthy countries, uh, uh, inequality was worse 50, 60, 70 years ago than it is now. And if you read properly researched articles, they will say it's never been as bad since you know the 1980s because they do know the journalists that, that who do the research. They do know that it was actually worse in the 1970s. But of course, it it is inequality is much better in poor countries now. Uh, in the even. In, than it was 10 years ago. This is only the, the, the inequality being terrible is only true in the past four years in wealthy countries. But if you look at 200 years ago, there's no comparison, meaning like one of the more interesting numbers that I saw was that the average calorie count in the average calorie count in France in the 18th century was the same as it was in Rwanda in the 1960s when Rwanda was the single worst malnourished country in the world. So basically we all worldwide in the 18th century saw a 90% extreme poverty rate, 90%. So basically everybody was shit poor And was ruled over by a tiny elite, the king and its and the surroundings of the king. And that basically was A couple of small exceptions like Holland, who had trader classes, or uh, or in Venice. But basically, the entire world, ninety percent, was like extreme poverty. Is a UN designated uh, situation where you don't quite have enough to eat.
0: So I would hope that our discussion around beauty and happiness and the data um, you've been sharing as well will help everybody listening to kind of lift spirits a little bit.
1: Well, I think and hopefully do more about the things that are close to their heart. Like I uh, I think that One reason I get pushback on these numbers is some sort of a idea that if we know those numbers, it will stop us from doing anything because the world is beautiful anyway by bother. And I feel that in order to become active or activists, it needs both directions. It needs the stick and the carrot. And we've seen that in developments, basically we've seen that with large social changes, let's say probably one of the more significant behavioral changes that happened in the past decade or two would be the downfall of smoking. You know, many countries... Uh, in many countries, smoking uh, went down by significant numbers from 20% to 10% or so on, roughly in, in those neighborhoods. And the research that I've seen, why did that happen, how did that happen, was both. was that on the one hand, there was the stick, government warnings, uh, health cares and so on. And on the other hand, there was carrots, like, you know, basically positive reinforcement of these things. And I believe the media is doing, the short-term media is doing, on the one hand, is clearly helpful, as in showing all the the problems that are coming about our terrible behavior as far as the environment is concerned, uh, as far as gender is concerned, as far as race is concerned, and so on. and at the same time, I do believe that a carrot is very helpful. That shows well, a carrot-like endeavor. That shows that we also have come a long way already.
0: And I think that's a beautiful thought to finish our conversation on. And for Wonderful. listeners to reflect on like you said, kind of knowing that now, what can we do? And what are our endeavors that are close to our heart and how we can through you know for many listeners to be through creativity how through creativity we can help or you know fight for causes that we believe in so thank you so much for your time Stefan
1: it was a pleasure wonderful Have have a wonderful good rest of the day
0: With a brilliant chat and with a way to start the season of the podcast I've really enjoyed Stefan's musings on beauty and happiness and especially the thoughts around how beauty affects behavior and I wonder actually what are your thoughts on measuring the impact of aesthetics on people's performance and behavior. Uh, You can comment on Instagram where I'll be posting videos of a conversation simply follow me at Justina Green and you can always get in touch via email at hello at justinagreen.com as well and before you go Make sure you subscribe to the OnDesign podcast wherever you get your pods from and rate and review it uh, in your Apple podcast app to help the pod fly up in the charts. And if you want to receive an email every week with a new episode update, just follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now. Right, that's all for today and I'll see you here next week.